Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Craig Martin about his great new book, A Critical Introduction to the Study of Religion, which was published by Acumen Press in 2012. There are lots of introductory books to the study of religion, and Craig Martin added his own contribution to this ever-growing canon. But why? What does this new intro offer? Well, if you're interested in learning how to penetrate the deep, true meaning of the sacred or how we can understand the nature of religious belief and experience, then I would keep looking. Martin offers an alternative to most introductions by presenting a socio-functional approach to cultural traditions, and generally he attempts to demystify religion as a natural category. He offers an explanation of the various elements of society by exploring notions of classification, structure, and habitus. He also walks readers through the social components of religious traditions, touching upon the concepts of legitimization, authority, authenticity. Throughout this book, we see the influence of people like Karl Marx, Peter Berger, Pierre Bourdieu, and Bruce Lincoln, among many others. Overall, this new introduction presents a critical approach to religious phenomena, which provides methods to determine the historical context, the material consequences, and beneficiaries of particular cultural practices. In my conversation with Craig, we discussed things like functionalism, social boundaries, classification, the relationship between words and things, uh, animism, stereotypes, essentialism, class difference, the supernaturalization of claims, cultural toolboxes, and many others. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Hi, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Craig Martin about his great new book, A Critical Introduction to the Study of Religion, which was uh, just recently published. Thanks for making some time to talk to me, Craig. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great. You, uh, you, really, you, you, you offer us a great alternative to many of the introductions to religions out there, so uh, I, I appreciate your contribution. Um, before we get into kind of some of the details of the book, though, um, maybe you could take a, a couple minutes to kind of just tell us a little bit about your background, how you got interested in the study of religion, um, people that might have been influential in, in the way you approach religion, which uh, is different than many people in the field. So, well, um, well, originally, I suppose my interest was pretty devotional in nature. Um, when I was in high school, I decided at the end of my high school senior year that I was, that I believe that God had called me to become a minister. So I went to Anderson University where I did my BA and I enrolled as a double major in Christian ministries and biblical studies. Um, however, along the way, um, as I became, uh, well, as I read deeply in biblical studies and as a part of my major, I realized that my very conservative evangelical upbringing didn't quite match up with what I thought was in the Bible and decided that that um, ministerial track was something I was no longer interested in. But then I decided, um, what else could I do with a BA in biblical studies except go on to grad school in religious <laughs> studies? So that's what I did. Um, I did my master's at 
Claremont School of Theology and then went on to Syracuse University to do my PhD. Um, at Syracuse, I studied with uh, Gail Hamner, um, who was an excellent advisor. Um, I can't say good, uh, I can't say enough good things about her. Um, but well, when I first started my PhD, I was very philosophical in my approach. I decided that I wanted to write a dissertation on something like Derrida's reading of Hegel or something along those lines. And I was reading, um, you know, Heidegger, Hegel, Kant, Derrida, Lacan, um, these types of guys. Uh, and along the way, decided that that again was not something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life and ended up writing a dissertation on, um, basically a, a critique of liberal political theory from what I understood to be a, a Foucauldian perspective. That book eventually became Masking Hegemony, my first book, which again is a, a critique of liberal political theory where I argue that the separation of church and state rhetoric um, masks more than it reveals about how things work in a liberal democracy, and that maybe scholars should stop using language like that and use use alternate language that would better bring into relief how power works um, uh, in a liberal democracy. So, so that was, that was how I finished my, my PhD, but that doesn't really tell you how I got into the sort of social theory that interests me for a critical introduction to the study of religion. When I was working on my dissertation, I picked up a copy of Bruce Lincoln's discourse in the construction of society. Um, and that was the first real social theory of religion or culture from a quasi-Marxist perspective that I'd come across that, that impressed me. And it completely changed my view of how I started thinking about those forms of religion that we typically call, or sorry, forms of culture that we typically call religion. Um, and so, the, yeah, reading, reading Bruce Lincoln's discourse in the construction of society was kind of a turning point in, in that part of my scholarly trajectory. And hence, you see, in a critical introduction to the study of religion, I like cite Bruce Lincoln on like every other page, which is actually <laughs> kind of ridiculous, probably. But uh, I don't um, think it's that often. <laughs> uh, I'm indebted to him um, and his, his direction in the field for... for um, for the direction that I took in my when I in in my teaching, basically, once I read Discourse in the Construction of Society, I decided, okay, teaching religion courses at the undergraduate level, I wanted to teach from this perspective, and I was looking for books, um, and I, I was reading as much as I could and taking that sort of angle or approach, and and ended up uh, when I got my job trying to teach from that perspective. Is that enough about my my, my great. educational trajectory? <laughs> yeah, was uh, did you pick this book up for a particular reason? Was it required in a class or anything like that? Or somebody just uh, say you should read this, Greg? Uh, well, I met Russell McCutcheon. Um, he came to Syracuse University and gave a lecture there and met with grad students. Um, and we struck up a conversation and hit it off. Um, and I began communicating with him via email. I was checking out his website, and I was looking at his uh, faculty webpage to see what classes he taught and what books he was using in his classes. And I started picking some of those out, and I saw that that was one that he used. I asked him about it. He recommended it highly. And so it was, uh, it was, it was a chance having met, met Russell McCutcheon, to whom, to whom I should point out I'm indebted to for 
for many other reasons uh, apart from my graduate. I never studied with him in grad school, but he's become someone who's looked out for me professionally since I graduated and uh, uh, yeah, helped me out along the way. I'm... Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, I mean, you kind of uh, alluded to this, but a little bit about how this project, this this book uh, came about. I mean, obviously from your, your teaching you mentioned, but could you could tell us a little bit about that, uh, maybe in relation to what else is out there? Why why did you feel it necessary to write an introduction? Yeah, um, well, I my first semester at, at the college that I'm at now, St. Thomas Aquinas College, I, I jumped into teaching Intro to Religion, um, Religion 101, and I assigned Peter Berger's The Sacred Canopy, and I didn't really focus on the whole thing. I was uninterested in the secularization thesis stuff at the end. I was more interested in specifically the first couple of chapters where he talks about how people are socialized in certain ways. They're socialized in ways that organize and structure society. There's a little bit of social constructionism in there. But then, um, and I think it's in the second chapter, he talks, starts talking about how legitimations come to justify the existing social order. Um, and religion or the sacred canopy, so to speak, is one of these legitimations that kind of holds the social structure in place. And I, I liked that. I wanted to use that. When my students found this book impenetrable, um, and, and to be fair to them, the vocabulary is pretty dense for, for 21st century undergraduates. Um, so I decided to look elsewhere. And basically, I found no intro to religion textbook that did the sorts of things that I was looking for. So I looked in like an intro to anthropology of religion, intro to sociology of religion. I looked for textbooks that were like intro to sociology. Um, and I couldn't find, I mean, there's, I, I would say that there's some good stuff out there, but I didn't find something that would do exactly what I wanted it to do. Um, so I decided to... Why not write a book about it? <laughs> well, originally, originally, I was like, let me just type out some lectures that I would give to students on Peter Berger's The Sacred Canopy. Um, so I typed out these long lectures sort of and, and gave them to students to read. And then I was like, damn it, I've got... Oh, I probably shouldn't say damn it. <laughs> you took it say damn it if you want. <laughs> After that point, I was like, heck, I've got half of a book here. I might as well... Um, expand this, add some more chapters. Um, so I, I turned it into a book proposal, turned it into a book, and I was on my way. Um, the, the one book that I found after I was almost completely done writing this was um, Mallory Nye's um, Religion, the Basics, which um, had I found that, that might have done the job for me. It didn't do exactly what I wanted it to do, but that's actually a pretty sharp book as far as um, uh, looking at how power functions. Um, he talks about um, people like Althusser and Gramsci, I think, in there. Um, exactly the kind of uh, approach that I was looking for. But I'm actually happy with, with my efforts and that I, I completed mine. Yeah, I, I'm glad you did too, Greg. It's, it's really a great book. Um, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but um, could you talk a little bit? So you you started here with uh, the sacred canopy as kind of a jumping board. Um, could you talk just a little bit about the process of thinking about okay, how do I how do I write a, an introduction to this topic? Did you read a hundred books, or what what kind of did you do, and how did you kind of say this this should definitely be in here, and I can I can leave this for uh, volume two perhaps, or well. Um, 
I got to say that I'm probably uh, went about it in a pretty naive manner. Um, and I knew that it's kind of unusual for a junior scholar to write a textbook, but out of my frustration, I, I powered through, but I don't think that I went about the process in anything remotely resembling a smart or, or um, systematic way. I just started writing. These are the sorts of things that I would want my students to know about. Um, so every chapter is almost like an expansion of a lecture or set of lectures that I would give in the classroom. So Craig, how uh, in, in structuring the book, you kind of have two main sections uh, one called how society works and uh, one, how religion works. Um, could you explain why this structure and, uh, and how, how are these, how are these interrelated, I guess? Right. Um, well, I'm, I'm not a vulgar Marxist, but I often play one in the classroom in a sense. Um, I, the base superstructure type of organization underlies a lot of what's in here. So how society works is thinking about society, classification, structure, habitus, social norms, these sorts of things. And then this, the second half of the book, how religion works, legitimation, the use of authority, authenticity claims, those are all what I would categorize as superstructure that's designed to legit, legitimate or reinforce the structure of society. Now, again, I'm not really a vulgar Marxist. If you push me, I would say, no, I don't really accept that. But it's a, it was a convenient way for me to organize this um, well, it was it was a way to organize this that I guess I stuck myself with. So, the, um, so the the first chapters that are on society are, I, I have one one chapter on social constructionism where I off, offer an argument for how I think language works and how language has a cons, con, constitutive role in organizing ourselves and organizing our society. The next chapter is on social structure, looking at how. Um, there are always hierarchies. There are always insider-outsider boundaries. Um, and then the, the next chapter on habitus builds on that by looking at how, um, well, basically, I, 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 use, I borrow Bourdieu um, in mass here to talk about how habitus is also part of the social structure and reinforces it and uh, reflects it, I guess. Then, um, then the chapters on religion, so to speak, uh, I, to be honest, and this is kind of a side point, I, I'm one of those scholars who thinks that the, the continuing usefulness of the word religion um, is in doubt for me. Like, um, I'm not sure that when we identify some form of culture as religious that we're, we're adding anything of usefulness to our identification of it. So um, I hesitated to focus on religion in an introduction to religion. However, in, in a, like, well, in religious studies and in teaching introduction to religion, you can't really have a book called a critical introduction to the study of culture and, and <laughs> pass, and pass that off. So even, uh, yeah, this was some of the, one of the things that one of the, the readers noted when, um, when the, when the press sent it out, um, to readers was that there wasn't enough religion in here. So, on my second time around, I had to put religion in probably a little bit more often than I wanted to. Um, I had to use the R word because the R word makes it seem like it, you know, it's really about religion. Right. When, when I probably would have been happy just saying, oh, yeah, this is just really about culture in general. 
Yeah, let me ask you something about that, actually. Um, so you, throughout the book, uh, and I think I think you do a lot of really great examples when you're trying to kind of uh, tease out how these different theories and methods you're, you're talking about work. Um, you talk a lot about race, gender, and politics, and I'm, wa- I'm wondering uh, wh- why or how is this helpful in the study of religion from your perspective to include um, these kind of topics? Uh I don't, I don't know. I guess it seems kind of self-evident to me that um, that those forms of culture that we call religion are political. They have a lot to do with gender. They have a lot to do, in some cases, with race and racial distinction. Um, and, I, I, maybe let me clarify. I guess uh, what I meant by that is you use them in a lot of cases uh, outside of a religious context, what we might call a quote-unquote religious context, uh, to say that these are parallel uh, cultural products or phenomena in some gotcha. way. So d- does well, by saying, let's look at race right now, as opposed to what might be called religion, uh, what kind of things does that illuminate for us when we then return to quote-unquote religion by looking at gender or politics or race separately outside of that? Right. That, uh, gotcha. Does that make so, sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and I have this – I had a student – who asked me this semester, she comes up to me after class and she's like, Dr. Martin, I'm having a hard time understanding what this class has to do with religion. (laughs) And I I had to, I had to defend my, uh, of course, all of our choices pedagogically are subjective. And I had, had to defend my choices and what I said to her. And I, and this is, this is my best explanation at the moment. Maybe it's not good enough or maybe I need to rethink it, but this is what I came up with on the spot that, um, because I think that those forms of culture that we identify as religious are not fundamentally different than other forms of culture or other forms of power, then um, looking at those sheds light on how, quote-unquote, religious culture works. So that just to take an example of gender essentialism, um, when people essentialize women in a certain way or essentialize masculinity in a certain way, we can go on and talk about how people essentialize Islam um, in certain ways. Um, I, uh, I think that these basically function rhetorically and structurally in, in identical ways. So looking at how one functions in one context, the analytical skills that we learn by looking at that transfer over to these quote-unquote religious contexts because religious culture functions the same way that these other types of culture do. That, yeah, that, I guess that's what I was trying to get at for the uh, for the listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book, maybe of of your kind of perspective. But uh, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not sure that I make it clear in the book that that's my perspective. I think I allude to it like once, where I say that I think that there's no difference between culture and religious culture. But that's something that uh, that's something that my students press me on all the time, and I think that they feel like they've been a victim of a bait and switch you know they take intro to religion and here we are talking about race and gender and stuff and they're like what what the hell <laughs> <laughs> um in the uh in the first chapter you call it uh laying the groundwork and there's a couple of uh, i think essential things you you discuss there for the rest of the book um one is this idea about defining religion a lot of a lot of work in the field begins with defining what religion is and or now questioning what religion is. Um, and I, I, I really like your approach because uh, you basically say we have this colloquial definition. Let's just work with that, right? So wh- 
why does using this colloquial definition, how, how can we use that? And what might be problematic about that? How is it useful to use that? Right. Well, um, I mean, uh, so many things I can say about this. <laughs> useful to use that. Right. Well, um, I mean, uh, so many things I can say about this. <laughs> um, I think that we're in the everyday use, like, well, isn't there a Zen saying that something like before I was enlightened, you know, mountains were mountains. When I became enlightened, mountains ceased to be mountains. But then once I was enlightened, mountains became mountains again. It's sort of like this moment where we take the terms, we deconstruct them. And then when we're done deconstructing them, we're, we realize, hey, we're stuck with the way that everybody uses this on an everyday basis. And I, I, I decided that I don't want to fight with my students about the definition of religion on the first day of intro to religion class. They, I have other axes to grind um, in my intro class. So I say, like, look, the, the way that people use the term on an everyday basis, the colloquial use of the term is – a, a grab bag use, like it, it collects together dissimilar things and it excludes things that are awfully similar to the things that are in the bag. Um, and actually to illustrate this point, I, I bring two bags to class um, and I grab students stuff on their tables. They probably hate this. Like I grab, I grab three notebooks and I throw them in the bag and I'm like, okay, let's say that this is a concept. This, uh, sorry, this bag is a concept. What do we, what do we say to define the things in the bag? And they're like, well, what they all have in common is they're all notebooks. They're all made of paper. They have writing on them. They have lines on them. I'm like, okay, that's easy. Now what happens if we put dissimilar things in these, this bag? So then I like grab a water bottle, somebody's pen, somebody's cell phone. I tell them no cell phones, but somebody's always got a cell phone out. And then, and then a, 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 a notebook. And I'm like, okay, now what do all these things have in common? Um, and they're so dissimilar that the things that we can have in common are so abstract that they're not really useful for a definition, right? They're all made of molecules or they all belong to someone. They're not particularly useful for a definition. So I point out the colloquial term of uh, the colloquial use of the term religion is is this term that groups together dissimilar things. It doesn't seem to me to be particularly useful, but um, we're stuck with using it on an uh, initial basis in the classroom. So just be wary of essentialisms that people might try to um, build on the basis of the term because – those things that, the, again, I'm repeating myself, I guess, the things that the colloquial term brings together were just really um, uh, a mess more than anything else, and, and, and or so I argue. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, it sounds like a good place to start with an intro class, because um, I think what really uh, you, you flesh out in greater detail in the, in the first chapter is uh, kind of your methods. Um, now, you, uh, you talk about uh, using that idea of functionalism, and what you call a hermeneutic of suspicion. I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, some of the methods you think that we should be doing uh, in the study of religion. Well, um, well, I think at the end of that section, I, I come to say that I think that I want to approach things from an outsider's rather than an insider's perspective. I'm, I'm not interested in privileging an insider's approach. Um, I'm a functionalist, not in like the a classic Arson's sense. I don't think that religion is some sort of essential feature of society, but I think that in a, in a generic way, those things that we call religious, religious culture um, 
serve functions of like legitimating social structure. If it's legitimating, that's a, a legitimating function. Um, and I am a reductionist, and I argue for use of reductionism, not in the sense of reducing. I don't think that all those things that we call culture can be reduced to one or two functions, but we can reduce it in certain instances to social functions. That's what interests me. So I say that in this case, we can reduce it in this direction. If somebody else wanted to reduce it in the psychological direction, I'm fine with that, but that doesn't interest me as much. Um, And... uh, so, yeah. Oh, and methodological atheism. I talk about methodological atheism quite a bit in that chapter um, because and, and I know this like methodological agnosticism is is all the rage and has been for quite some time. And I know few people who really want to consider themselves methodological atheists. However, I'm really unconvinced that methodological agnosticism works. For instance, to say that gender is a social construction um, is methodologically atheist, because I'm sure that some of the people that we study, like evangelical Christians of the sort that um, some of my family members are, they would say, no, gender is not a social construction. Gender is something that was created by God and implanted in human beings and you know they've got some sort of natural law theory for how that works and if we say that we're methodological agnostics and then go on to talk about the social construction of gender we're not really being agnostic about that we're saying no that's not true it really is a social construction instead and if that's the case i think that we're being methodological atheists um and we might as well just fess up to it and say yes we're approaching these things from a from an outsider's perspective and um we shouldn't have to pretend that we're upholding the insider's approach when, in fact, that's not really what we're doing. Um, so, yeah, in the, so in this first chapter, just kind of just to give a little overview, you, you kind of uh, end up with the idea that even though when people think of religion, they think of things like the divine or the sacred or eternal or things like this, we really don't have access to that. So we should, you know, be more concerned with historical context and, uh, you know, material consequences, uh, things like this. Um, yeah. So uh, then you kind of move into this uh, idea revolving around uh, society, right? How society works, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your 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 uh, discussion in the book that you do about this idea of classification, and uh, you you've mentioned this uh, this idea of social constructionism. How does that work in relation to classification and why, why should students of religion study this or be aware of this? Um, well, uh, I think that, and I don't think I really bring up naturalism until the chapter after classification, but really, nat- uh, not naturalism, naturalization. Naturalization is really what I'm targeting in the chapter on classification. That people naturalize certain ways of organizing the world into certain groups, into certain categories. Um, and in dividing the world in the ways we do, we, as scholars, I think we should see that these, these ways of dividing things are not natural and that social constructionism um, is the first step towards denaturalizing those, those classification practices. And that looking at, hey, um, the way that we divide the world is not the way that everybody has always divided the world. Things can be divided differently. And, and in addition, um, the way that people divide things seem to be tied to their interests, um, that they divide things in ways that serve their interests. I give the example, I think, at one point that um, when I was a kid, I was uh, allergic to 
any kind of nut that was not a peanut or an almond. And when I ate these nuts, it would basically, uh, I wasn't deathly allergic or anything, but it would, it basically felt like somebody had set my tongue and my throat on fire. So my family, of course, developed a, you know, a technical term, a classification for the safe kind of nuts and the unsafe nuts. Um, and that's not just a random arbitrary classification. It's a classification that reflects the interests of my family and their concern over my safety. Um, so classification, I think, is never innocent, is always linked to social interests and, um, and often leads to essentialization that people assume that things in this classification are essentially one way. And I argue that, no, the things that fall under classifications change over time. They are often dissimilar, like the term religious, uh, sorry, the, the very term religion grabs together dissimilar things. So to make generalizations or to assume some sort of underlying essence is highly problematic. Um, now, you talk a lot about the relationship between uh, words and their, uh, I guess, their, the signifiers and the signified. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how uh, the relationship between words and things might be different than words and ideas? Uh, uh, does that make sure. sense? So, okay. like, uh, you know, calling something a rock doesn't matter if we call it a rock or something different, but calling someone a scholar or a doctor or a professor. Uh, you, uh, you you kind of tease this out in the in the chapter. I'm wondering if you could talk about that. That's, that's right. Um, uh, and I get this in part from Ian Hacking, uh, philosopher Ian Hacking. Uh, I think that his term for it is looping concepts. That some concepts have a looping effect on the things that they identify, um, such that um, like Pluto was recently declassified as a planet and reclassified as a dwarf planet. It doesn't. I, it doesn't really hurt Pluto's feelings, I'm assuming. It doesn't change Pluto's orbit or its mass. Um, however, if I take a bunch of students and I call them women as opposed to men, that will probably have an effect on them. Um, there seems to be an effect on the way we identify. And, and the example I give in class, and they're all familiar with this, like I'll, I'll pick out a student and say, hey, Kelly, you know, if I called you dumb, all semester long, would that have an effect on you? And of, of course it would. Then I assure them, no, I don't. I don't think you're dumb, Kelly. You're very right. However, <laughs> for the for the sake of this example, right, the humans respond to classifications in ways that um, inanimate objects do not, um, and therefore we have to be especially sensitive to the looping effects of classification on humans and and uh, human groups. Um. You also, uh, I, I like it at the, at the end of this chapter, you, you link the idea of animism, which we often uh, in religion study kind of in, in a different context with the idea of stereotypes and essentialism. I'm wondering if you could talk about how, how do these relate to religion, right, in the, in the intro class? Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 the stereotype of animism, and I don't really go beyond the stereotype, although perhaps I should have, but the stereotype of animism is, you know, hey, this group of people thought that rain was caused by a rain god or that, that thunder was caused by a thunder god. Um, the idea that there's some sort of hidden essence underlying a, an activity or, or something that we can see that causes that to happen. Um, and, and today, 
for the most part, people are like, oh, yeah, that's just superstition. Of course, um, thunder is caused by electricity in the clouds or whatever. I'm not a scientist. Don't ask me for the specifics. But, <laughs> but, but um, you, you know, there are other causes, complex causes. There's not some sort of secret, hidden, animating spirit behind that thing. Um, and we think, oh, yeah, that's superstition. That's gone. We're in a scientific, rational world. Nobody thinks that way anymore. And I'd flip that around and say, no, um, we are still animist in the sense that we are essentialists in that when we identify someone as woman or someone as man, we often, not always, but we often project some sort of underlying feminine or masculine essence that causes them to behave some sort of way. And I joke with my students to kind of illustrate the the ridiculousness of this, you know, if we take Kelly, hey, Kelly, if I, if you died and I um, did an autopsy and I open you up, am I going to find a feminine essence somewhere in there? No, I'm not. Um, and, and scientists have tried to find such essences. And if you, if you read Anne Foster Sterling's book, Sex in the Body, you'll find that they have a very difficult time finding these essences. They appear to be projected by humans as a part of their classification system. If someone's like, "Oh, Muslims, yeah, they're all they're all um, they're out, all out to kill Westerners, or they're all violent," um, and of course, most scholars wouldn't say that, um, but some of my students might think that. They're usually smart enough not to say that out loud, but. But that's that's animism. That's assuming that behind this large group of people, there's some sort of hidden essence that we can't find. We can't put our finger on it, but it must be there like a soul causing them to behave in some sort of murderous way. Um, and I try to suggest to my students that that's absurd and that perhaps we should be as suspicious of animism or sorry, as suspicious of essentialism as they might be suspicious of, of uh, what they would consider superstition. Yeah, I think uh, by grouping those together, it does a – and your discussion, of course, does a good job of kind of highlighting the, uh, the absurdity of those types of claims. Um, in, the, in the next chapter, you talk about uh, structure, right, structures of society. And uh, you, you've talked a little bit about naturalization, but I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, the specific effects of kind of the naturalization of the social order. How, how exactly does this happen? Well, um I really don't like the term internalized depression because I find that it assumes that there is some sort of otherwise free subject in, in subjectivity. However, this chapter is basically about internalized depression, that people internalize the behaviors expected of them by society, um, sometimes in ways that don't serve their own interests. And I think that, like, kind of metaphorically speaking, the center of this chapter is that... Um, the image, the voters of Massachusetts image that's on page 56. And it's this ad that was posted when women were trying to get the right to vote in America. Um, this ad was posted. It was funded by women who were opposed to women's right to vote. So it says voters of Massachusetts, one million, one million women of voting age in Massachusetts do not want to fight men in politics. Less than one-tenth of that number are demanding the ballot. Stand with the, will, stand with the million. And it goes on. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But they make it clear that, that they, as women, are opposed to women's right to vote. And my students today, of course, think that's absurd. Why would women, like, isn't it clear in retrospect that, that having the right to vote is part of one's interests and that choosing to reject one's right to vote is against one's interests? 
and I, I point out that these behaviors, these expectations become naturalized, that um, we internalize the expectations society has of us, and we tend not to think outside the box. I also give an example of um, when you go to the airport or you go to the bank, they have those those ropes, right, that form the lines, and you go up and you get in line. And I say that our identities in society are basically like those lines, and we're very strongly discouraged from stepping outside those lines. Um, uh, once we're in those lines, we don't put ourselves in those lines. Other people give our identities to us. But once we're in those lines, we, uh, we generally tend to be embarrassed or ashamed when we step outside the lines. So we stay in, even with if staying within the lines doesn't serve our long-term interests in certain ways. Um, the, uh, the last chapter you do where you focus on this idea of society, um, you focus on this, this concept of habitus, which I haven't read a, a, a ton of intro to religion books, but I don't remember people discussing this elsewhere. And I'm wondering... One, if you could kind of uh, explain this to us, what is this idea of habitus, which I think you do very well in the book, um, and then why why bring this into the, the intro to religion uh, class in, in the book? Well, um, hmm. uh, there's, of course, a case to be made that perhaps this shouldn't be in here. I, I think that part of the reason why this is in here is because I was on a Bordeaux kick when I was writing this book, <laughs> and... Um, Habitus seemed relevant to everything I was doing at the time. In addition, um, the last chapter um, on what would Jesus do, which was, uh, it's a critical reading of Charles Sheldon's In His Steps. I assigned that in my intro to religion class. I assigned that novel. Um, and I, I think that to analyze the novel effectively, you have to have some grasp of the concept of habitus. I think that having Bourdieu's concept of habitus really sheds light on what's going on in there. So to lead my students up to reading that novel, I was, I was teaching them a little kind of Bourdieu in a nutshell um, to lead them up to that point. So, um, but what is habitus? Um, well, for Bourdieu, um, well, obviously the root, root word of habitus is habit, and I think that the basic idea is that we all internalize a set of habits, um, and this term habitus is kind of a grab bag term in that it groups together, in a sense, a lot of dissimilar things. Bourdieu would include our classification, like the sets of classification that we use to organize the world as part of our, our um, habitus, our preferences, our tastes, our ideas of success, our, our life goals, um, our practical practical sense, meaning our the way that we go about interacting with other people on an everyday basis. Um, we have a practical sense. When, when someone reaches out their hand in front of me, I don't have to think twice. I automatically reach out, grab it, and shake it. That's what we do in our society. But none of those things are natural. They're all a product of socialization. Um, for Bourdieu, however, what's important is that these are these vary by class. That um, the way that one classifies the world, one's preferences, one's ideas of success, and one's practical sense might be very different if if you're born um, if you're the the son of a billionaire or if you're the son of someone who is on welfare. Um, and Bourdieu argues that despite the fact that we'd like to think that we live in a meritocracy. In fact, um, these behaviors, these habits, um, 
send signals to other people about who we are, what we're like. And if you're, if you have a different habitus, then, then, um, you know, the other people that you're looking at, you may see them as lacking in common sense, lacking in a practical sense. You may see them as unreasonable. And for Bourdieu, right, his question is, how does, how, how is, how, how do classes maintain themselves over time? And, and in some, I think the short answer is that people like to be with people who are like themselves. They like to be with people who have a similar habitus as them. And um, on the other, on the flip side of that is that people will discriminate against those with a different habitus because they see them as unreasonable or as lacking in common sense, et cetera. Um, and um, so to kind of tie it into, you know, quote unquote religion, how does this fit into what we might call, you know, these religious traditions? Like, how, how can habitus help us examine Buddhism or Hinduism or Christianity? Well, um, you know, I, I often lament the fact that um, in in India they frequently use the term communalism for to well, as I understand it, to describe any kind of ism, racism, classism. Communalism is kind of the generic term for any type of community standing off against another community. And when I look at religious organizations, religious traditions, I see communalism taking place. Um, Habitus seems to be, in many cases, a part of that, that if you're a member of a church, um, your church may have a class status. The people at your church may be of a certain class and you may look at people from a different class in ways that are negative um, or uh, or you actually you may view people who are part of the same religion but a different class positively because you classify them as one of your own um, this can be part of your habitus I would argue and uh, all that's to say is that I think habitus is one of the tools that helps shed light on how communalism functions um so mo- moving on, you this uh, you then move on to this. These are the how religion works uh, chapters, and the first one you you talk about is this idea of legitimation. Um, and I guess the, the 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 main thing that you're talking about here in the beginning is this idea of discourses um, and this this uh, phrase manufacturing consent. I'm wondering if you talk about how how do discourses work? How are they used? Uh, and maybe generally or specific in religious contexts, either one? Well, um, I mean, basically, I think that um, religious culture has the function of justifying certain social orders. And and I go step by step through the chapter saying that um, icons, discourses, myths justify or legitimate social boundaries, they justify social hierarchies, and they, they justify the, the behaviors assigned within the community for people of different rank, different stature, etc. Um, and one of the examples that I, that I give of social boundaries, something as simple as the Jesus fish is, is, is used to just, it's a flag. It's a flag that says, I'm a member of this group. And those little people, or sorry, those people with the little Darwin fish on, uh, you know, the evolving Darwin fish that they have on the back of their cars, that similarly is a flag that says, I'm part of a different group than those people with the Jesus fish groups. Um, uh, these things legitimate the, the drawing of the boundaries. Um, 
And then you, uh, I, I like how you, uh, I, I don't know if this is the exact phrase uh, you use, but you, you talk about like the supernaturalization of claims. How, how, um, do, how do claims become <laughs> supernaturalized, and, and why are people doing that? Well, um, that's probably a terrible, terrible term, supernaturalization. <laughs> but, but I think that um, uh, insofar as discourses justify or legitimate, um, discourses that appeal to supernatural deities or supernatural things that people are persuaded by, that like ramps up the level of the legitimation. So, you know, if I tell you that um, my wife wants me to do something, you know, that's one thing. But if you tell me that Jesus wants me to do something, and if I believe in Jesus, well, that that ranks up the importance of what's just been said, if if I buy it. Um, and legitimations are not always persuasive. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But um, so supernaturalized was kind of, you know, Talking a certain way can justify a way of, of, of existence, and, and talking about these things in ways that appeal to supernatural gods, goddesses, um, curses, all this sort of thing, yeah, can supernaturalize it, ramps up the, the significance. Um, now, uh, you talked about what you call a cultural toolbox, and I, you, I guess you mentioned a, some of these elements, but what, what exactly is a cultural toolbox? What are these elements, uh, and then how how are they used in this process of a le- legitimization? Yeah, um, when I was when I was uh, writing this, I saw a cultural toolbox or similar terms. I saw cultural repertoire and some some of the things I was reading. I saw this pop up in a lot of the stuff that I was reading at the time in different types of social theory. And what I liked about this was precisely that it worked opposite to the idea that belief informs behavior, that most people's theory of religion seems to be that people have beliefs and their beliefs force them to behave in a certain way. The cultural toolbox way of talking about things says that people have a lot of things in their cultural repertoire, including beliefs or things they say they believe, traditions, rituals, myths, stories, texts, icons, um, authoritative figures, ideologies or theologies. I would say all these things are part of one's cultural toolbox if, if you have a distinct culture of any, any sort. And people appeal to them to justify what it is that they want to accomplish. Um, so that if I think um, Charles Sheldon and in, in his steps, and again I'm looking at the, the last chapter of the book, if he says that Jesus wants us to... Um, not drink alcohol, and he seems to have thought that was the case, this is probably not because he was said, I believe the Bible, let me read the Bible, oh, it says not to drink alcohol on here, so I should not do that. Um, it was probably more the reverse. It's probably more likely that he was already persuaded by the agenda of, of prohibition, um, and this book was, uh, Charles Sheldon's book was written a little bit before prohibition, um, and he thought, hey, uh, well, probably not consciously, but unconsciously, hey, if I appeal to Jesus as a defender of prohibition, people are more likely to listen to what I have to say. So Jesus, as an authoritative figure in his cultural toolbox, can be used to justify prohibition. It's not like Jesus told him that prohibition was the way to go, and he believed it, so that informs his actions. In, in this way, I think that... Um, 
beliefs and the, the elements of our culture are um, indirectly related to our action in a kind of after-the-fact justifying effect rather than something that is constitutive or motivating in the first place. Now, again, this sounds like I'm a vulgar Marxist, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that this is true all of the time, but I think it's true often, and noting the secondary place of this I think is important. Um, yeah, I, I hate it, and I, this is something that I rail against on and off throughout the book, is the idea that beliefs just drive action. Um, and if you'll, if you'll uh, humor me for a second, I think it's at the end of this very same chapter where I point out that Max Gluckman does this analysis of a, um, a society in uh, Africa, and I think he studied them probably in the middle of the 20th century, and they, they reported that they believed, you know, quote-unquote, they believed that the king could um, control natural disasters um, or control nature, which would include natural disasters. But then he says that in practice, and this is a quote from him, in practice, rebellion was probably waged by a prince as a leader of a discontented faction. Which means that it's not like, oh, a natural disaster happened. Well, I believe that the king is responsible, so therefore we have to de depose him, of course. It's more likely that the quote-unquote belief was part of their cultural repertoire that that the king is responsible for these things. And if you're dissatisfied with the king's actions, you can use that to justify removing him from office. Um, but if you're not particularly dissatisfied, you may not activate that element of your cultural toolbox at that time. But these things are activated sometimes and act not activated at other times, depending on what the immediate interests of people are. Um, now, in relation to this, uh, you talk a lot about uh, authority in, in the next chapter. Um, and you talk about different types of authority. You say there's authority in things, uh, in figures, and then uh, absent authority. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about a little bit how, what, what are these things, or what are these uh, types of authority, and, and how do they work? Do they work differently? Well, um, in a... In a sense, um, anything that is in your cultural toolbox carries some authority for you or your community um, in some way. Um, I, I think I point out that I don't think that the authority is like literally in the things. It's in the community that reveres them as authoritative. Um, but specifically, absent authority figures, and I argue that texts with absent authors um, are more easily subjected to projection. Um that authority figures who are absent, it's pretty easy to project one's own views onto them. And I argue, or I point out, that the, the history of studies of Jesus seems to bear this out, that Jesus seems to be the best Rorschach test ever. Right? When, I, when, you, when I ask people what they think about Jesus, they're probably telling me what they think about something. Um, and in fact, there's actually a... Um, I, I quote in passing a study um, where this group, they, they did an actual like scientific study where they asked people what their views were on certain political issues um, and asked them what they thought other people's views were on political issues. So they could like come to you, hey, Christian, what's your view on abortion? What's Barack Obama's view on abortion? What's your mom's view on abortion? What, what do you think um, the... Uh, uh, 
leader of the Republican Party's view on abortion. And then they ask, you know, what's God's view on abortion? And it turns out that God's view and your view seem to line up more often than not for people who say they believe in God. Um, and that wasn't enough to demonstrate to them that they thought that projection onto that authoritative figure was happening. That wasn't enough. They went ahead and they would they would try to persuade people to change their minds. So after you told us that, hey, you're pro-choice, um, they would sit down and try to persuade you to be pro-life. And they would give you persuasive speeches. And, of course, I'm sure not everybody changed their mind, but some people did. And at the end of this people changing their mind, they go through and ask again, hey, Christian, What's your view on abortion now? What's Barack Obama's view on abortion now? What's your mom's view on abortion? How about God? I mean, it turns out that your view of Barack Obama didn't change. Your view of your mom's view didn't change. But when your view changes, it turns out that God's view changes as well. So I said this is kind of the model for analysis here in this chapter, that people seem to project their views onto whoever's authoritative in their cultural toolbox. And this could be a divine being, but it all it could also be a historical figure. Um, I think that the founding fathers are some of the greatest recipients of projection in American political discourse um, these days. Uh, and I lost my train of thought. Does that, <laughs> That's okay. does That's that okay. answer your question? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, uh, maybe maybe you could talk about, uh, you, you mentioned this kind of return to origins narrative that, that happens a lot in, re- in relation to this absent authority. Uh, do, do you feel like that's a, the, the most effective use of absent authority? Uh, yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I wouldn't say it's the most effective. I would say it's a pretty common one um, that uh, is, is quite probably the most popular. Um, and what I tell my students is, you know, people use these return to origins narratives according to which, it, well, they have a story that, so-and-so, whoever my enemy is at present, they have an account of, of, of the origins that's corrupt, right? If your your interpretation of Muhammad is a corrupt version of what Muhammad really said or what Allah really said or whatever, our, our organization or my institution or my community has the correct interpretation. We have gone back to the pure original understanding of things as opposed to the corrupt version that you have. Of course, what's ironic is that it seems like just about every group has their own return to origins narrative. The, 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 the Protestants used this against Catholics at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, but it didn't take long for the, the Catholics to return with their own return to origins narrative, according to which the Protestants had a corrupt version of things. So, um, and, and it seems like the origins of whatever it is we're talking about cannot usually bear all the different versions that are, are said to to come from the origin, like right when I when I line up ten different people and ask them what the origin really was like, I get ten different versions. That tells me that at least nine of them are projecting their views back on the origin, if not all ten of them. Um, that's a little bit too superficial, a little bit too flip, but I think that that's basically right. Um, now, Craig, this is the, this is the real question we need to answer here, and uh, <laughs> I, I'm. I'm this is tongue in cheek here, of course. Um, how do we find the real religion, the real Christianity, the real Hinduism, right? The authentic, <laughs> right? You've been talking a lot about society, but how do we how do we get to the kind of the real or the true religion? Well, Christian, you, here, you just listen to me. I've got the <laughs> truth. <laughs> I've got the authentic version of things. 
So you can just trust me. Um, no, yeah. So um, if, if that's not the question we should be asking, what kind of question should we be asking? Yeah, in, in the chapter on authenticity claims, um, I suggest that rather than try to determine what is authentic and what is not authentic, that it's more useful to look at the effectiveness or persuasiveness of authenticity claims within certain communities. So rather than ask, you know, is this authentic? Ask a question like, what would someone gain by claiming this is authentic in this particular context? Um, who identifies what is authentic? What effects do they want to have happen if other people are persuaded by it? What, you know, what do they win? What do they lose? Um, because, and given my anti-essentialism, um, that's pretty clearly revealed in the classification chapter, I'm pretty suspicious of any kind of authenticity claims as anything other than sheer rhetoric. They, they more often than not look like power plays that suggest, you know, I've got, I've got a handle on things and your group doesn't. So listen to me rather than them. Um, understanding these things as power plays more than anything else, I think is, is the best way to go um, from an analytical or scholarly standpoint. Um, now, the, the last chapter is you have this case study, and you've, you've mentioned it a couple times. I'm wondering if there's anything else that either from uh, teaching it in your class or the way you talk about it in the book, uh, if there's anything you, you want to kind of point out for listeners of, of how these things you've introduced in the rest of the book kind of could, it, could work out in a case study like this one. Well, I mean, the, the, well, I guess to indirectly answer your question, the reason why I chose this is, a, is this book, Charles Sheldon's In His Steps, is because I think that it's one concise location, one one piece of data that I think allows us to illustrate almost all the things discussed in the book. That in the novel, we see Charles Sheldon employing a certain type of classification scheme for analyzing his world, right? He looks at his world from a particular perspective, and he divides his world up into certain groups. Um it's related to social structure. Late 19th century America, there was a certain class structure, and this appears in the book. There's a working class and there's a professional class, and these are the uh, the author's terms. Um, and and it, it turns out that these class differences the, that reflect the social structure are uh, end up being a very important part of the novel itself. Um, habitus appears in the novel. Certain characters have a habitus um, that's different than other characters' habitus, and they seem to discriminate against the other characters on the basis of their habitus. They seem to assume that because they have a different habitus, they are unchristian, inherently speaking, because they behave in this way that's different from the way that proper Christian people behave. Um, and then going on to uh, authority and legitimation, the author... Uh, proposes that he, of course, he knows what, what Jesus would do, and Jesus would enforce prohibition. Um, this is a use of the authority of Jesus in late 19th century America, and it's designed to legitimate a very specific social agenda. So the only thing that I think doesn't pop up too much in the book is authenticity. But apart from that, I think all of the, the, the categories that pop up in the earlier chapters um, are right there in this piece of data. So it allows us to kind of show how one piece of data um, can illustrate all these things at the same time or just about all these things at the same time. Um, 
plus I'm a little bit of a Marxist and look, pointing out class difference and how how class difference happens and affects Christianity during you know after the Industrial Revolution. That's that's interesting to me personally as well. I also wanted to ask you, Craig, if you don't mind. Um, now, I, you use a lot of really interesting and unique examples throughout the book. And uh, as I was reading, I kind of imagine you in the classroom. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what what other things do you use alongside your your intro and uh, the in his steps book? What other things have you found to be effective in in, uh, in relation to your book? Right. Um, well, I, I assign Charles Sheldon's In His Steps, and they read that. I also assign um, the Bhagavad Gita in that um, in the intro class, and I, I think it's pretty self-evident when you read the Bhagavad Gita that um, the book is in part about legitimating a class structure in ancient India um, and also legitimating certain desired behaviors for people in certain classes. Now, uh, it's always obviously more complicated than that, but to some extent, I think that's true. And I think that to the extent that my students can understand the Gita, they can see that going on. So we, we read the Gita, and then I make them write a paper saying, how is it possible that the Gita might have legitimated class structure or class difference You know, when it was first written? Um, and it also permits me actually to point out that you know when people read the Gita today, um, they're not using it for the same thing. That when people read the Gita today, it's not to persuade warriors to fight battles. Um, there's something else going on, um, and that's because the elements in our cultural toolboxes are always infinitely, infinitely recyclable. That um, I was telling a class just last week that I think that the closest synonym to religion is recycle. <laughs> That people take elements of their culture and they recycle them and repurpose them. They put them to use for new purposes given new interests or changing situations. Um, so that allows me to point out that, hey, this element of the Indian cultural toolbox may have been employed one way in the past, but it's employed differently today, etc. Um, uh, one last thing that might be worth pointing out is that I end the class by looking closely at race and I talk about white privilege at length and the students read um, Emerson and Smith's book. It's Christian Smith and Michael Emerson co-wrote a book called Divided by Faith, which is about how evangelicals view um, race difference and disparities between race in America and that allows us to bring up the way that evangelicals classify their world, how evangelical habitus might predispose them to viewing things in one way rather than another, and also allows us to talk about um, yeah, the legitimation of certain types of disparity. That's great. Um, from your from your own experience teaching this, and uh, you know, presumably the audience, uh, the wider audience who might read this book in intro classes or on their own. Uh, what what would you say you hope your students? Ha- what's the takeaway for them at the end of the semester? Which I know you just finished up here. So, well, what's the takeaway in the sense of like, what do I hope? Yeah, what do you hope they uh, they remember in five years? <laughs> yeah, um, I think that. Well, my my teaching goals that like you know I 
we're supposed to develop goals for teaching that we put on our uh, sure. t- teaching portfolio or whatever. And I've my teaching goals that I, I state are, um, one, to teach students that societies are never ordered in ways that serve everyone's interests equally, that societies are always structured in ways that benefit some people over others. And the second, my second teaching goal is to teach students how to identify how those structures are maintained over time. Um, and it doesn't happen by magic or by fiat, but it happens through the deployment of authority, the deployment of legitimation, the naturalization of certain behaviors or certain social structures. So I guess my takeaway is that I hope that they will look at not just what we call religion, but society in general with a more skeptical eye um, that that when they turn on the television and they see the t- when they see masculinity and femininity displayed in certain ways that they might wonder if, if that's a social construction and not something natural and could it perhaps be otherwise and could could we serve women and men's interests differently by structuring things differently I think that that's uh, uh, I don't think that that actually happens because <laughs> I only I only get them for one semester if I had them for four full years right if they if they're religion majors maybe maybe I'll get that but my hope is, I guess, that they would just look at society with a more critical eye um, at the end of the day. Um, Craig, what else uh, What else are you working on now? What kind of future projects do you have coming coming up here? Um, I have written a few uh, essays that touch on the subject matter of religion and capitalism. Um, some of them are... Along similar lines as Corrette and King's Selling Spirituality, which I know a lot of people are familiar with, um, and I'm, I've revised some of these and added to them, and I'm trying to turn it into a book on religion and capitalism, specifically looking at how, um, well, what people often identify as individual religion or spirituality, I think is a pretty bourgeois phenomenon, and I'm trying to analyze how it's perhaps um, designed to legitimate consumer behavior under late capitalist conditions. How's that for vulgar Marxists? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great, Craig. Uh, well, thanks thanks for making the time uh, to talk to me. Uh, we really appreciate it, and I know everyone who, who picks up the book will definitely uh, find it valuable. So thanks, thanks for uh, pushing through and writing the intro book, too. So. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. That was my conversation with Craig Martin about his great book, A Critical Introduction to the Study of Religion, which was published by Acumen in 2012.